Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd turn, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the rack in front of you. I'll begin reading at uh, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak, and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. When we read 1 Corinthians 11 and, and verses 27 through 34 by themselves, they provide a good instructional background for the observance of the Lord's Supper. But we have to ask the question, why is this here? Why is it written? Certainly we benefit from it. But there's definitely a reason as to why the apostle had to write this at this time to these people. Especially when we get to verses 33 
and 34, we get an even greater picture that something was wrong. And the problem is dealt with in the beginning of this reading that we had in verse 17. Something was out of order. Something that, that needed correction. And it was connected with the observance of the Lord's Supper. Now compared to how we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the way they were doing it back at that time is quite a bit different. And the way they were doing it in Corinth seems, well, abhorrent. A custom had developed whereby they would connect the Lord's Supper with an ordinary meal. It is somewhat understandable for the first commemoration. When Jesus instituted it at the end of the Passover, uh, notice in Matthew 26, in verse 26, Matthew 26, verse 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, a psalm, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's funny how the, the new translations gloss over the fact that the, the word in the original is a psalm, uh, not a hymn. They sang a psalm. Uh, they didn't have hymns. All they did was sing psalms at that time. So it appears that as this was received by the early church, it became somewhat of a, a tradition or a practice, a custom for Christians to assemble for a regular meal and to connect it with the commemoration of the Lord's death. It's hinted at if we go back to Acts chapter 2 and uh, uh, verse 42. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, the breaking of bread can be taken just as a regular meal or an observance of, of the Lord's Supper. In verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. <clears throat> and in Acts chapter uh, 20 and verse 7, they speak of the first day of the week uh, to break bread. So again, the term of breaking bread was commonly used for a regular meal, but also, uh, well, just as a little aside here, uh, 
sliced bread was not commercially put out till 1928. Which means O.B. Wallace brought the first loaf. <laughs> so here in Corinth, the Lord's Supper was connected with a regular meal. But the probability exists that rather than following what Jesus did that night, it was more than likely linked to the feasts of the Jews and the Greeks when their feasts were a public gathering and there was a sacrifice to their gods. Remember in Acts chapter 15 and verse 29, we have this, this sort of undertone, this problem that still existed. And so the Gentiles were called uh, to the Jerusalem decree for how the, the Gentiles were to, to worship and, and have nothing put onto them. But in verse 29, it said that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. Keep yourselves from these. You'll do well. Things offered to idols, which means basically, uh, especially food, uh, that was offered to idols or, or sacrificed. <clears throat> so in 1 Corinthians 8, in verse 4, the apostle writes there, for concerning the eating of things offered to idol, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that, that there is no other God but one. But this kind of cultural infiltration was evident in so much of what they did, in so much of their lives, for these people, for most of them, especially for the Gentiles, there was no Christian heritage for them to follow. And so there was a long time pulling them from uh, their regular practices. Now, according to this developing custom, people brought their own food. It was certainly what we would call a potluck kind of setup. It was sometimes called a communion. And the situation that Paul is dealing with is more often the well-off, the, the richer people brought a lot of food. The poorer folks brought little or nothing. And now while this should be a great time of unity and fellowship, Paul said there were divisions in the chapter 11 and verse 18, first of all, uh, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Uh, for there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. <clears throat> statement that he makes in, in verse 19 has been taken to, to extremes. And some will say, well, because, yeah, there's factions. There's always going to be factions. Well, yes, we understand that there may be that. And people will say, especially today, well, we ought to celebrate the diversity of the factions. But what is he saying? Because there are factions, there means 
there are people who are wrong. And so he said, there must also be factions among you that those who what, are approved may be recognized among you. That there is one truth. And you can't come up with several versions of it. There's one truth. Now there are those factions, but there's only one truth. So those who have broken away from that one truth show themselves to be disapproved. The one who stays with the truth shows themselves to be approved. Now in this situation, the rich often arrived first. And the poor usually arrived after work. So that the time that the poorer ones arrived, the food was gone. And this issue was common and it was stayed in the church in many locations. James would also write about it, how the poor were treated differently than the rich. And obviously then, with this kind of treatment going on, Paul says, I can't find this praiseworthy. And he brought out two problems. First, they had turned the Lord's Supper into an ordinary meal. And second, during that meal, they had divisions, mainly between the poor and the rich. But some were eating and drinking in excess. Others were left with nothing. So they had moved far away from the original design. So in verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's not what you're doing. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. So in light of this, what does he do? Well, he takes them back to the original, the original institution of the Lord's Supper. And to show first that it was not meant to be an ordinary meal. It was to be a commemoration of the Lord's death. And that secondly, it is something of which they were participating in in an unworthy manner. That there was supposed to be a preparation by self-examination before participation. So he begins in verse 23 through 26. And you see how he makes sure that they understand that this was to be set off from the regular meal. It was to be seen as a separate observance, not something that uh, you had during the middle of it or something that you say, well, we've all come here in the name of the Lord and, and we uh, recognize the Lord's death and we've come together to eat our, our meal together. No, no. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, there's a special dignity, there's a special value, there's a special meaning in the Lord's Supper. There's nothing else simply like it. So if you look, there's, there's three things that we can look at here in regard to the Lord's Supper. The first thing is what it displays for us. It displays for us the highest degree of love ever experienced. For it causes us to see not only the death of Christ, but the purpose of that death and the persons for whom it was done. The second thing that we would see from it, that look at what it gives to us as far as the benefits. Christ is spiritually present in the elements. 
And in a way, we can say that he is almost more present with us during the Lord's Supper than in any other time because the symbols are calling us to observe his presence and observe what he has done. Here, he is saying, take, eat, this is my body. He's giving himself to us and for us. And it depicts our, our union with him. And something maybe we don't think about often, but it gives us a glimpse of heaven. Just a momentary glimpse of heaven. It causes us to remember what he said in Matthew 26 and verse 29, that I will not eat uh, and drink of the wine until we're all gathered together in the kingdom. But the foretaste of heaven is the Lord with his people. And here we have that symbolically done for us. So it's a foretaste of what we will have in heaven. And it tells us as well what he has given for us and why it was done. And that heaven is only for those who truly believe in Christ. And so it is with the Lord's Supper. It is only for those who truly believe in Christ. I know it's tough sometimes with children when they see the plate going around and, and uh, they see the juice going around. They say, well, I want some of that. And there are some adults who feel like they are entitled to it because, well, they're just church members. But it is clear the Lord's Supper is for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who know what it is that he has done and that he has done that for them. We, uh, those questions in the catechism today were spot on as far as, as understanding that. And thirdly, there's something, there's something that he's commanded for us to do. It is a means of grace. We use that term. It's always good to remind what a means of grace is. A means of grace is a channel. It's a conduit by which God sends his grace to his people. And the Lord's Supper is one of those conduits. It should cause us to acknowledge and to admire his sufferings the amazing and inconceivable love that's behind them and what it has done for us. And with this in mind, then we might be able to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. I would ask you now to take your Baptist hymnal And if you would turn to hymn number 374. And this will be a time during this for our, our elders and deacons to come forward as we sing this hymn. Hymn number 374, you say, well, we have not sung this before. But it is to the tune of when I survey the wondrous cross, your supper, Lord, before us spread, the cup beside the broken bread, 
reminds us of your life laid down, the shameful cross, the thorny crown. Your sacrifice was for our gain, to save us, Lord, you bore the pain. Your love is clear for all to see. Your sacrifice has set us free. In fellowship with you, we feel that you are here, your presence real, for you have risen and now live within our hearts, new life to give. And now may we worship. We know here, remind us, oh, you are always near. Help us to live our lives each day in love and faith, O oh Lord, we pray. Let's stand together and sing 374. <clears throat>